Yesterday afternoon, Gil shared with us some reflections on this uh, particular chariot, the, the purification through knowledge and vision of what is and what is not the path. You might recall uh, the encouragement he gave us both yesterday afternoon and this morning around direct experience, the importance of that, and we'll be coming back to that. And then also introducing us to these defilements of insight, or another way it's sometimes talked about are the imperfections of insight. And what brings that quality of defilement or imperfection is that grasping on to these, you could say, these groovy experiences, thinking that that's what the path is about, is simply having some kind of far-out experience. But it's actually something more than that. It's the heart's release. It's this quality of really letting go. And this afternoon, I want to share with you some reflections on this next chariot, this, this, the purification um, through knowledge and vision of the path. It's like the, through getting clear about these defilements of insight, these imperfections of insight, what starts to become clear is, is more of a sense of what this path is, the knowledge and vision needed for, uh, for freedom. And before I, I get into that, I, I want to come back to that discourse that I had begun with, uh, which is the, the discourse on the relay chariots, where we're, we're kind of basing a lot of this on. And you might remember, it's that image of King Pasanadi going from Savatita Sekata through these, uh, these chariots, these seven chariots, getting on these seven chariots. And I notice... Um, Sometimes when I go back to this discourse, I felt like this afternoon I was going back to this discourse and that image, and I feel like when I closely read that image with what I call the my eye of practice, it's kind of like my eye of practice it sees behind all those poly words. It might not even be seeing those poly words. And something else pops out. When, I, when I'm really getting uh, uh, reading it from my eye of practice is that, is that uh, King Pasanati, what I realize is that he actually wasn't going anywhere. He was just going in a circle <laughs> around and round and round on these chariots. And it's so important for me to come to this realization that actually he hasn't gotten anywhere. He's not really going anywhere. He just, he just, learning how to reside on the chariot of the Dharma. And that's all that's needed for him to, to enter into the inner palace, for him to come home. And really important, because I know my mind, my mind can get so hooked by this linear idea of the path that somehow I start over here on the right-hand side, and then I kind of traverse hit one chariot, and then another chariot, and then another chariot, and then I get over here. And boy, my mind can really do a number on me with that kind of story. Because linearity, you know, the, the, the idea that the path is linear is just a story. That's all it is. It's a helpful one. I quite like it and utilize it a lot. But I, I want to offer you this, this other story of these chariots that might be within that discourse, at least in some kind of way, that might be just as true. 
that all these chariots, they're just happening right here. They're just happening right now. And really helpful for that mind that grasps, grasps, gra is grasping for, for what's next. That, get, that gets hooked like my mind does of trying to become somebody. Trying to become the person that's over here on the path and is so sick and tired of being over here on the path. You ever notice that? So it's just a invitation to hold these chariots a little bit differently. To, to hear maybe the image that's behind all those poly words as well. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that one story is more true than the other. It's just that one story might be more helpful at sometimes than the other story at other times. And, and the reason I wanted to share uh, this at the beginning of this talk is I, I realize I've gotten in this, this mode that really what's so important is to lead with the heart. And this kind of story that all of it is just happening right now all of these chariots speaks to my heart because it softens it and it opens it for it to ease just into doing the practice. Not worrying about where I am or where I'm getting, but just following the Dharma. And that's what allows at least my heart at times to settle and to open and to simplify what we're doing here. So when we stay right here, sometimes the chariot that we find ourselves in is this purification through knowledge and vision of the path. The, this, or, or the, the, langu the, the word that Gil was using, shedding, a kind of shedding that happens through this uh, knowledge and vision. And I think the shedding happens by seeing the nature of our experience in a very particular way. Just a next, you could say, baby step with what we've been sharing with you. And I'd like to uh, begin with a story around this. Once upon a time, the monastics were hanging out in the assembly hall. They had just gotten, gone out for alms around, had their meal, and hanging out, and the Buddha wasn't there, but Ananda was there, and Ananda um, decided to uh, just share some stories about the, the Buddha. Namely, he started to share with the monastics um, all the wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Buddha. So he was sharing that, you know, the Buddha was able to know all of the Buddhas of the past, their name and their clan. pointed out that the Buddha lived a whole life in Tusita heaven before, before arising as Siddhartha Gautama. And when he entered his mother's womb, a great immeasurable light shone around the world. The world shook and quaked. And probably at this time, at some point, the Buddha came in, as the Buddha was, was as the Ananda was saying, uh, sharing this. 
And what I imagine is I can imagine feeling a little bit nervous at this time. <laughs> so here's Ananda, maybe a little bit nervous. Here's the Buddha. And, and the Buddha says, oh, please, please go on, Ananda. Please continue <laughs> sharing what you're sharing. <laughs> don't, don't mind me. <laughs> so maybe with a little hesitation in his voice, Ananda continues. And not only was that wonderful and marvelous, you know, four young deities guard, was guarding the Buddha while he was in the womb. And after Ananda was finished with this rather miraculous list, uh, the Buddha says, very, says something very striking to Ananda. He says, that being so, Ananda, remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Here, Ananda, for the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise as they are present and as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present and as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present and as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. I feel that the Buddha is very gently pointing out in this instance to Ananda what's truly marvelous. Seeing clearly, seeing clearly the arising and passing away of experience is truly wonderful and marvelous. Much grander and much more powerful than all those other stories about the Tathagata. And it reminds me, really, what we're inviting you to engage in is so simple, yet so profound. To notice what is happening, right? the direct experience, like this morning. Not, not so much the hand, but the experience that, that comprises that concept of hand. A warmth, coolness, tingling, vibration, that world. Noticing that. And then notices, notice what happens to that world, how it arises and passes away, how it undulates and flows and ripples out. And it's with every experience, with the sound of my voice, how it comes and goes, the feeling of the body sitting, the rippling and the undulation of sensation right now. And through seeing this so clearly, this is, this is the knowledge and vision that, that, that allows for a kind of shedding, for a letting go, the, the heart's release, freedom. This, I think, is, is the knowledge and vision now of the path, getting clear about what's not and what is the path. And now this is the gateway into to insight. Sometimes a Vipassana insight is, is what this turning is about.
And I think this this theme of impermanence is really helpful to understand uh, this project of letting go. Remembering that that, that freedom is about a, a, a mind that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's it's free of that reactivity. And sometimes when I reflect on it, grasping and pushing away and that delusion, or just to me, it's it's a way of kind of bracing against impermanence, of wanting, as I say, impermanence on my own terms. Like I like impermanence, I'm all down for it, but I want it on my terms. And that's, that's the glitch. There's nothing wrong with things coming and going. I can think of all kinds of things that I would love to go right now. <laughs> the list is probably endless. But that's, that's, that, that's the kicker. It doesn't happen on my, on my terms. Right? That pain or that emotion or that thought, that noise, be so cool if it changed now. <laughs> and you might notice this, right? Or it can be even around the pleasant experiences. Hoping that it would change later rather than now. Hoping that the joy or the equanimity would last beyond the sit, beyond the day for the whole retreat. Impermanence on our own terms. I, th I think one example of this, so poignant, so kind of clearly described this many years ago. I uh, was um, I was given the opportunity to to design and create this meditation program at a drug rehabilitation center in southern New Mexico, and so I'd come in in the mornings and we would all sit together and we wouldn't sit for very long, maybe ten or fifteen minutes. Usually do some yoga or some stretching beforehand and. During one of these sitting meditations, these 10 or 15 minutes, here all of us are sitting there, and this is, you know, kind of the world of early recovery, sitting in silence, maybe halfway through the sit, and then out of the silence comes this thunderous voice from someone, ring the damn bell. <laughs> <laughs> so great. <laughs> Do you ever feel that? Just <laughs> wanting to like, just like, belt it out there, right? <laughs> Are you asleep or what? You know, come on, ring the damn bell. <laughs> it's really great. Impermanence, impermanence on our own terms. And I think this is, this is the struggle. I can intellectually know it, but to get a feeling sense of this in my bones is so different. The Zen master I practiced with put it well in, in actually very different language. He'd say, you know, here I am up here, I'm selling round trip tickets to heaven and hell and nobody wants to buy them. What's up with that? I don't understand it. What was he saying here? We, we fight the unceasing flow of pleasant and unpleasant. We don't want to see that we're on, we already are on the flight, the round trip flight from heaven to hell again and again and again. And neither are the problem 
It's our fighting against it that's the problem. And I think there's a, a deeper dimension to, to impermanence. If it's just if, in some ways to, to really get real about what makes it so challenging, at least what made it so challenging to me is, is loss, the experience of loss. And I know pr probably all of you in this room know this, the pain and the challenge of navigating loss. I think it's one of the biggest challenges of being a human being. I'm sure you know it, the, the loss of someone so close to you in your life. The loss of a relationship. The loss of our health or abilities can be so painful. You know, and sometimes loss can feel like it's continuous, like a continuous loss around our health. And I think this is very important, especially for the practice, is especially, I think there can be a feeling of a, a loss around the things that we've never had, but we always wanted to have. And to me, so much of the practice is about that. I want the world to be a certain way so desperately. It's never been that way, but I still want it to be that way. And some of the pain that I experience in practice is I have to come to terms that I'm never going to get that world. And it hurts. And I think sometimes I shy away from directly seeing what's going on and experience because it can be a painful thing to touch that I'm not going to get the world I want. And we'll come back to this because I think this is a important piece of coming to terms with impermanence, of really having this insight into impermanence, this knowledge and vision of this path in this way that really frees the heart when, we, when we're really do willing to, to continue with this seeing, this direct experience like we've been encouraging you to do. And it's so simple, this, how we're coming to terms with impermanence. It's by noticing impermanence and touching into it. And when we touch into impermanence, really bring that in, beautiful things can arise. There's sometimes a beauty around it. You might have noticed this yourself just in your sitting and walking meditation of just seeing the flowing of experience and the beauty that can arise from that. I'd like to share with you a, a poem that I, I think gives voice to some of this poignant beauty. It's a poem by Liesel Mueller. It's a poem of hers called uh, In Passing. She says, How swiftly the strained honey of afternoon light flows into darkness. And the closed bud shrugs off its special mystery in order to break into blossom. As if what exists, exists so that it can be lost and become precious.
as if what exists exists so that it can be lost and become precious. The preciousness of this world that we live in. There's another reason I wanted to share this poem with you, though, to actually, in some ways, juxtapose it to what we're inviting you, how we're inviting you to get a taste of impermanence, which is a little bit different than this. Which, again, just comes back to getting a feeling sense of impermanence around direct experience. Again, the hand. Not so much on the level of hand, on the level of vibration, of warmth, of coolness on the level of the feeling of the movement of maybe the hand. That movement might feel bumpy or smooth or erratic. That level. Not the big stories and the concepts, but this more intimate level with our experience. So I want to play around with this a little bit with you to see if we can get a, a little bit of a feeling sense of what I mean by, by getting a sense of impermanence on this level, the, the level of direct experience. So again, coming back to the sound of the bell. So in the hearing of that, I ask you, I want to ask you, was that one sound or two sounds or three sounds? How many sounds? Is that the best way to describe that experience is just, that's just one sound of the bell after I strike it? Is there just one knowing that's happening or 10,000 there might be thousands of sounds coming and going there right the sound right there is so different than when i struck it why would we call it the same sound there might be something very misleading about calling that a sound because it might lead us to believe that that's just one experience and it began when I struck the bell and then it's going to end right when it fades out but sometimes if, if I come to my experience with these bigger concepts, I might miss the flowing, undulating, rippling quality of that experience. And did you hear some of that? I mean, it's just remarkable what's in that. 
That's why I, I invite you in your in your practice as we continue on to be really suspicious of nouns. <laughs> they are so deceiving. Nouns, when we call things one thing. Really becoming curious about just an experience like that. And not only the object of it, but the knowing of it. Because sometimes what it feels like is that knowing or awareness is just one monolithic thing that's always there. And then it's filled with a world of other monolithic things that are kind of always there, at least for quite a while. And, and then what happens is that we can be under this delusion of continuity, of things persisting in a way. And what we're inviting you to do is to take up a per particular perception. This is how the Buddha talks about it, is taking up the perception of impermanence. You know, later on in the commentaries, they talk about this as the three characteristics, but often the, Buddha, the word the Buddha uses around, um, around impermanence is not, not characteristic, but perception. As we take on this perception of really seeing impermanence in its detail like this. The rippling, undulating flow of sound. The rippling, undulating flow of sensations moving through the body. Sometimes there's a way to contact emotion in a way where we catch that quality of flowing and undulating and coming and going in all kinds of ways. Or thoughts. So I invite you to have that sensitivity to whatever's arising, like with the abdomen rising and falling, taking just the rising, the abdomen rising, to be careful of that, because it's verb being used as a noun. I <laughs> can't remember my grammatical things around this, but seeing that the, the, the rising might be so much more vast and intricate than just that word. There might be 10,000 arisings that are happening. Or the, the feeling of that, at times it might be feel like it's wave-like, or it's happening in a staccato way. Or it might feel like it's coming and going, or that it kind of stops and starts. It might feel bumpy at times, within just the feeling of the movement of that. An invitation to notice what's going on. Oh, the rising, oh, stretching. Oh, it's not just an in-breath. Oh, this is the feeling of stretching. Oh, and it feels smooth. Oh, it feels bumpy. feels like it's coming and going a lot. And this really speaks to these different qualities of, of impermanence. As the Buddha says, practitioners, these three are, the, are fabricated characteristics of what is fabricated. Which three? Arising is discernible. There's an experience that arises. Passing away is discernible. An alteration, this undulation, is discernible. So to notice that impermanence is not just the coming and going, it's the alteration, it's the, it's the undulation of experience. 
And what's important is to see that, that how the mind is perceiving impermanence can change quite a bit in these different kinds of flavors that I just described, but also how impermanence comes to the mind. So the analogy that uh, was given to me by Saito Uvivekananda, which I found helpful, is that sometimes it's like, it's like you're at, at, um, on a busy street or a street where cars are passing by. And sometimes the way the mind perceives cars passing by is it just sees that cars are coming towards it. So what is so clear is like, oh, the appearance of cars. It's like there's a hill there and it's like, wow, just one car after another just seems to be appearing on this road. It's so interesting. And then at other times, the way the mind is kind of positioned in terms of the road, it just feels like the, the, the cars are coming and going, not so much the horizon, but they're just passing by so quickly, right? You're kind of perpendicular to the road, so they kind of appear and disappear, appear and disappear really, really quickly. And then at other times, the mind might be turned, so it's just seeing the cars pass away. So it's like, well, I don't see any cars really kind of appearing, but I can see all of them kind of disappearing from my view. It's just like one after another just seems to be disappearing. So these are just descriptions of different flavors of, of impermanence, of how the mind might be seeing flow. And it's getting sensitive to, to flow in the, these kinds of ways. And also what I want to point out is that it's so tricky to talk about because it's not an invitation to kind of intellectually know if you're seeing a lot of things arising or a lot of things passing or them happening quickly. It's just a, it's like allowing the awareness to be impacted by impermanence, these different flavors. I don't have to figure anything out. You don't have to do anything new in your practice. It's just being a little bit more sensitive to change, either on this mi uh, micro level or the big level of this morning, right? There's a, a lot of grogginess, and then by mid-morning it disappeared, and by the afternoon there was achiness, to notice that it's just the flowing nature of, of experience, just tasting that again and again and again. Another thing that I invite you to well, just be sensitive to is how the mind's relating to this world of change. This is very important. Because you might have noticed that sometimes the mind can be so fascinated by practice. It can be so fascinated by how experience comes and goes. Sometimes, especially like when, when, when it's kind of resting with the breath it's more pleasant. There can be something so cool about soaking in that feeling of flow. 
or the sensations of the body moving in walking meditation. There's a quality of fascination. But I want to point out that there might be all kinds of different flavors also, not just the pleasant flavors, such as fascination, but sometimes taking in the world of impermanence can be a rather unpleasant experience. For good reason, right? Because of how much we fight it and, and the pain that we've experienced around loss. So sometimes it's a scary thing. Sometimes it's saddening. Or sometimes it gives a yucky feeling. And these, also these flavors can arise through this tasting of this direct experience. And it, it uh, brings me to another point that I think is important about these seven relay chariots is that there, there's a sometimes a, a flavor that comes on these uh, chariots, really uh, the flavor of mourning, of grieving. I get some of this from um, Jack Engler, who was a, a psychologist at uh, Harvard who wrote quite a bit about these seven relay char chariots in really striking ways. And really pointing, pointing out that a big part of practice is going through a process of grieving. Grieving sometimes, as I said, for the, the world we never had and we never will have, but we're still hoping for. What's the world that your, your mind and heart are hoping for? And coming to terms with way, the way things really are. And I think, as many of you know, around the process of, of mourning is that it's so messy and difficult. And I think this is also why I wanted to point it out, to dispel this notion of a linear path. What I've noticed when I've grieved like the loss of a friend is that whole emotional experience is anything but linear. It feels messy and chaotic. At times I feel like I'm going crazy that's part of this path, that's part of the process to open our hearts to such experiences. And it can be tricky at first. Mary Oliver, the poet, puts it well. I think this is uh, a short poem she, she wrote uh, after the loss of her dear, dear partner that she was with. I think they were with each other. Uh, for many, many years. She said, someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. In the dark times of your practice, can you remember that this too is a gift that is leading us onwards? 
And, uh, you know, sometimes this is likened to uh, that phase of a spiritual life that's sometimes there, sometimes not there, that um, St. John of the Cross was at least attributed to him, this, this sense of the, the dark night of the soul. It's like in the darkness, there's a kind of clarity that comes of what we've been holding on to and seeing that what we've been holding on to is not reliable. And there's an emotional response to that at times that is important. It's an important part of the process. And to see that it, a lot of these flavors are wholesome. For example, I remember I was in uh, Nepal and uh, for me, some of this, the, these these uh, flavors are really strong, and I want to point out for some practitioners, these flavors of kind of this 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 uh, dark night of the soul can be really really strong, and others it can be very very subtle and not so striking. But when I was uh, practicing in Nepal, there was this uh, a lot of fear that was coming up, tremendous amount of fear around just taking in the 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 passing away of experience. Um, yeah, it was difficult. I actually totally freaked out, actually, to be honest. <laughs> I, it was one of those all-night sitting things. I couldn't go to sleep because the because the, the experience was so strong and felt like everything was falling apart. And, and of course, during the night, I was thinking, how am I going to tell Saito Uvukananda that I'm, like, totally ready to leave right now? Like, this is, this is enough. And I remember coming to my interview in the morning, and uh, <laughs> what he said was funny. He said, Brian, come on, no, now this fear that you're experiencing, is it, is it because of the Maoists? And it was kind of funny because at that time on, on the retreat, the Maoist rebellion was kind of in full swing. So you would hear bombs going off at nights because they were letting the um, villages know that there was going to be a, a strike and not to be driving their cars. So it was like, here's like <laughs> these sounds. And I was like, actually, I wasn't. I wasn't afraid of that. And uh, he said, yeah, so just remember, this is good fear. This is Dhamma fear. This is, this is the fear that, that's supposed to come with the practice. So go back and practice. <laughs> it's actually relieving, even though he's a little bit strict about it. But it was nice to see that some of these emotions that we feel around the grieving process are wholesome. Because it shows that I'm, I'm in the process of coming to terms with the world that I'm living in. Just as when you grieve the loss of a, a dear friend, all of those emotions are so important to feel and to go through. They help us shed and cleanse and purify. I think Chogyam, the, the Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trupa put it well. He said, the, the bad news is you're falling through the air with nothing to hang on to and no parachute. And the good news, there's no ground. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're looking for is that turn to really be able to give ourselves over to that and to kind of kind of expand that sense of, of falling this comes from um, uh, Bayou Okomalafe who's a uh, Nigerian writer uh, really uh, striking writer it says falling this process of falling might very well be flying, but without the tyranny of coordinates. This is 
what we need to see that our falling in this impermanent world really is a kind of flying. But without the tyranny of all these huge concepts, this, this really might be where our freedom is. And I think the other reason it's important to know about all these things is, is, is just a reminder, as I was saying the other day, that, that what's, what's arising in our practice is that this too is our practice. Because sometimes the deepening of practice is the practice getting foggier and more unclear rather than clearer. Or it's sometimes when it gets more unpleasant is the deepening of the practice, not when it's getting more pleasant. And so often what I notice about my mind is that this mind is so makes associations that if, if practice is pleasant, that means it's good, it's going well. And if it's unpleasant, then it's not going well. And there's something so diluted about that. And I think sometimes that's why I find it helpful to remember that sometimes I'm the, the person that is worst, the worst person at assessing how my practice is going because I can get lost in this, this um, ideas of pleasant and unpleasant. And the other thing I wanna point out is that sometimes in these times of difficulty in your practice that can just pop up, right? You start to gain a momentum in your practice and then it can feel like you really hit some really bumpy territory. The five hindrances come up and attack you again or that old story or just unpleasant sensations on whatever level is that what can be so helpful is just to continue to be with those phases. One story around this, I met uh, a practitioner in, in Nepal who had spent many, many years practicing in Sri Lanka. And um, he had gotten into this kind of phase of his practice, really kind of this dark night of the soul phase. and. The place he was practicing in Sri Lanka, the monastics would always say to him when things got unpleasant, they'd always be like, oh, oh, just go get a cup of tea and just just uh, 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 don't practice anymore. So he did this for years. <laughs> and then he went to Nepal and he, and he started practicing. And maybe he went to Burma and then went to Nepal, started practicing inside of Vivekananda. And he was getting to the same kind of similar flavor in his practice of it really getting very difficult. And he told Sadhu Vivekananda that this is what he was thinking of doing is go get a cup of tea. And Sadhu was like, what? Are you crazy? <laughs> no, this is, this is when you need to practice. This is when you need to make sure to have energy in your practice and continue. D don't, don't let go of your practice now. This is the way through is by the continuation. So again, an invitation when, 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 things, when things feel like they're disintegrating, it might be the time to get really have this quality of continuity in your practice. And yes, it's tricky. There are times when, when experience is getting so overwhelming, where mindfulness is overwhelmed, that the best thing to do is to have a cup of tea and forget about practice. I don't want to dismiss that skillful way of engaging on retreat. It's just that if it becomes too habitual around everything that's unpleasant, we might be stepping off the chariot in a way that doesn't help so much.
And I'd just like to end with a poem that I think embodies some of the wisdom that comes when we open ourselves to any grieving process that arises on, on retreat and in our lives and our practice. Because so much comes out of our opening to this dimension of being a human being. It's called the, the poem is called The Well of Grief. It begins, those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down to its black water, to the place that we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness the small gold coins thrown by those who wished for something else. That's what it takes, doesn't it? Is your willingness to slip beneath the surface, the beneath the surface of these bigger concepts, really the intimacy of touching the world of sensation, of, of the undulation of thoughts and emotions coming and going. Feeling into that, even to the place we can't breathe. And that's where we find something that really does have the taste of freedom, that, that cool, clear water. And also to see the small, cold coins thrown by others who suffer. Right? The arising of compassion. Because then I get it. I get what it is to be a human being that suffers. So may our, our opening, our opening to impermanence, the flowing, undulating quality of experience lead to the liberation of all beings. Just uh, sit for a moment here. <coughs> 